In the beginning was matter. And matter begot the amoeba. The amoeba begot the worm. The worm begot the fish. The fish begot the amphibian. The amphibian begot the lizard. The lizard begot the lower mammal. The lower mammal begot the lemur. The lemur begot the monkey. The monkey begot the man who imagined God. This is the genealogy of man. That is almost a verbatim quote from a man by the name of Charles Smith. In a nutshell, he has given to us the idea of atheism. Atheism comes from two Greek words, a meaning no, theos meaning God. Atheos means the idea that there is no God. That this universe is all that there ever was, all that there is, and all that there ever will be. In fact, we are told by many people in our society that if you are a religious person, the reason that you are religious is because you just have not considered the evidence with an open mind and you haven't looked at what is available. In fact, we are told that most religious people, when they come into a religious assembly, they check their brains at the door, and the reason that they are religious is because they just blindly accept whatever it is that they are told by the person standing up who supposedly has the religious authority. That's what we're told. The idea of atheism for decades and decades, especially in our culture, has been a minority idea, but if you were to track its progress, you would see that in this generation at the present, atheistic thinking is more prominent than it ever has been in the history of the United States of America. Do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that I'm 38 years old now, 20 years ago when I was 18, if you had asked me or the hundred teens that I hung out with in Middle Tennessee that were religious people, hey, do you know someone who is an atheist? 20 years ago, not a single one of us would have been able to have said, yes, we do. In fact, you might have had to define the word atheism for us because it was a foreign term to us. I teach a Bible class at Maywood Christian Camp in Hamilton, Alabama. For the last several years, I've asked them a single question. Do you know someone who's an atheist? The first year I had 42 students. Out of the 42, 32 of them said, yes, I know someone who is. Folks, in 20 years, half of a generation... 80% of our young people now say, yes, I know someone who is an atheist. I asked the same question the next year out of the 40, about 30 of them. asked the same question out of the 52, about 40 of them. And one of the young men that was sitting on the front row said, I am an atheist. Now, atheism says that there is no supernatural being of any type. That there is no superintending mind that the blind, random chance processes that have been at work for billions of years brought you into existence. But there's another idea. I'd say that you are slightly familiar with it, most of you anyway. It goes something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God divided the light from the darkness, and the light he called day, and the darkness he called night, evening, morning, first day. 
And then subsequently, day two, God creating the firmament, as the Bible calls it. We would call it the sky or the atmosphere. Day three, the flowers, grass, and trees. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, birds and fish. Day six, animals and man. Day seven, ceasing his creative activity. In a nutshell, those are your two ideas. Either there is a supernatural, all-powerful creator who brought this world into existence, or there is not. The truth of the matter is there is evidence that establishes one of those two ideas. If a person were simply to say, I'm going to follow the evidence where it leads, at which of those two conclusions would that honest, truth-seeking person arrive? Well, that's what I'd like to do tonight. I understand that it's impossible to set aside all of our prejudices and biases. It's impossible for us to come in here as a blank slate. But I believe that we can take an honest look at the evidence that's available this evening. And when we do that, I believe that we can arrive at one of those two conclusions. Now, what we're going to do to start off with is look at several scientific laws that are available to everyone upon which we all agree. Everybody in the discussion recognizes these laws as relevant and as solid. These laws are understood and accepted by everybody involved. Now, you know the difference between a scientific law and a law that a legislative body would make up. You see, a legislative body decides what they like as a law, and they vote on it. Now, let's say you're going down I-24, and the speed limit is 70 miles an hour. Well, maybe they're doing some construction, and 70 miles an hour seems like it would be too fast in a construction zone. And so the legislators get together and say, hey, we've got a 70-mile-an-hour speed zone. It's a little bit too fast. Let's slow it down to 55. All those in favor say aye. Well, you have a vote on that. If it passes, then you change the speed limit from 70 to 55. We understand that's how a legislative law is made. You know, that's not how a scientific law is made. You see, the reason that a law is called a law in science is because, now, I want you to get this. You understand it. I'm not telling you anything mostly that you don't know. But there's never been a single exception to it. If there ever were a single exception to it, it would not be called a law. It would be something else. A scientific law is exceptionless. Nobody's ever seen anything that would violate the law. Let me show you what I mean by that. Uh, suppose I have this uh, mechanical pencil here, and I'm talking, and you're listening, and I drop this mechanical pencil. Which way is it going? Every time that I drop it and miss it, it's going down every single time. Now, what if I would really like for this pencil not to drop when I let it go? Wouldn't it be neat if when I opened my fingers, this pencil just floated in midair? That would be pretty neat, I would think. And in fact, you know, what if... What if I'm kind of tired of the law of gravity? I'm about sick of it, in fact, because every morning when I get out of my bed and I put my leg out off of my bed, my leg goes down. And what I'd really like to happen is for my leg to float in space and me to be able to push off my bed and float over to my dresser and open up that dresser. Wow, wouldn't that be great? And you know what? Sometimes when you're running or walking, I had a buddy who just started some exercise program up and he was walking through his neighborhood and he tripped on a curb and broke the outside of his foot. He's been walking around in a boot. You know, when he tripped and fell, he broke his foot and I didn't really like that. So what if I said, guys, let's change the law of gravity? And I said, all right, we're going to invite 
into this building. Now, of course, this is going to be hypothetical, but hey, this building might accommodate uh, one billion of the most brilliant people in the whole world, but let's say we could do that. We get one billion of the most brilliant minds in the entire world, and we say, guys, ladies, gentlemen, are y'all having a problem with the law of gravity? And they say, yeah, we're having a problem with the law of gravity. And you say, well, I am too. Let's vote to change it. And so we say, who wants to vote to change the law of gravity? Every single person out of the one billion audience person we have, they all vote, yes, I, 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 I. I say, great. We have just now taken one billion of the most brilliant people in the world, voted to change the law of gravity. This is awesome. I just need a volunteer to step off a 20-story building to prove what we've done. You volunteering? Oh, oh, okay. We didn't have enough people voting. So what about two billion? Or three? You know, what if we take the entire population of the world at the present, 7.35 billion or so, and every single person votes to change the law of gravity, how much is that going to alter the law? None. Because a scientific law is a scientific law, whether you like it or not. Now, it just so happens that the scientific laws give us evidence for one of the two conclusions. In fact, you use the scientific laws that help us see this evidence every single day, even though you might not call it a scientific law, you use it all the time. <coughs> the most fundamental scientific law of all the scientific laws in existence today is the law of cause and effect. Here's what the law of cause and effect says. For every material effect you see, there has to be a cause that came before it, and that was greater than it. You understand that the law of cause and effect is the bedrock of every single scientific experiment ever done. Here's why. If you're not looking for a cause for the effect, what are you looking for in science? You see, when a person gets sick and they have symptoms of something, what the doctors want to find out is what's causing the symptoms. When something starts to disintegrate in a dish and it puffs up a big cloud of orange smoke, what the scientists want to know is what caused the disintegration in the puff of orange smoke. Now, like I said, you use this all the time. This is hypothetical, but work with me. Supposing that this evening you were listening to every single word that I was saying. In fact, I was so very interesting. You weren't thinking about the television program that's coming on later. You weren't thinking about the football game that's going to be played tomorrow. You, like I said, this is hypothetical. I mean, I understand that this is... Very, but suppose you were listening to me so well, and then all of a sudden, this book shoots across this room going 100 miles an hour and slams into the back. Smashes into, what, 180 pages. Your eyes get as big as saucers and you spin around and you say, Kyle, what caused that? What if I were to then respond? Nothing caused that. Sometimes books shoot across the room spontaneously with no cause going 100 miles an hour across the room. Nothing caused it. You would say, hmm. I don't know who invited this guy to come and speak to us this evening, but someone needs to reconsider the invitation process by which a speaker is brought into our assembly because that's ridiculous. What if I then said, no, 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 no. Okay, guys, we all know, all right, everybody knows that a cause has to be available for the effect of the, song, of the book shooting across the room. Here's what really happened. A tiny speck of dust 
landed on the edge of the book and boom, catapulted it across the room at 100 miles an hour. Now we've got a cause that came before, a tiny speck of dust landing on it. But what's the problem? It's not big enough. Do you understand that the law of cause and effect directly eliminates one of the two options for the existence of the universe? Let me explain to you what I mean by that. If you were to approach the atheistic idea and ask this simple question, what's the cause of our material universe? You see, because that's what we've got to deal with. We have a material universe that is a material effect, and we need to know the cause of it. You see, the atheistic position says that 13.82 billion years ago, a tiny singularity is what they call it, exploded in what's called the Big Bang, but before you get to that explosion, which will show that that's not scientific either, but before you get to that, the original question is, where did the singularity originate? Where did it come from? Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I want to ask you this simple question. If at any time there was nothing, what would you have right now? Nothing. Something doesn't come from nothing. You know, that would be a violation of the most fundamental scientific law that we have. You can't get something from nothing. But do you understand what the atheistic presentation gives as the explanation for how our universe got here? I'll give it to you. Now, there's a man by the name of Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking has Lou Gehrig's disease. I don't know if you know who Stephen Hawking is. You've probably seen him recently talking about artificial intelligence on the news. You maybe have seen him on the Curiosity television program that I think aired on the History Channel. He drives a mechanized chair that he moves with one side of his face. In fact, if I understand it, it's about an inch of his face. He has a computer that is so well designed that he can literally give lectures to thousands and thousands of people by using that one square of his face to pick what section of text he wants to be used, and then he picks that, and it comes out in an animated audio voice. Stephen Hawking wrote a book called The Grand Design, and the intended purpose of the book was to show that you don't need a god for the universe. And they ask Stephen Hawking, where did the universe come from? The original ball of stuff that you say exploded, where did it originate? And here was his answer. Because there are laws like gravity, the universe that we have in existence now will spontaneously generate from nothing. You know, and he said it with a straight face. And he wrote it in a scientific book trying to sound legitimate. Now, when they ask him, well, can other stuff spontaneously generate and pop into existence out of nothing? What about a star? He said, no, stars can't. They said, what about other stuff in space? Can other stuff in space spontaneously generate, pop into existence from nothing? He said, no, nothing else that I know of can, just whole universes. 
You mean to tell me you've never ever seen anything spontaneously generate from nothing? You've never seen matter pop into existence from absolutely nothing? And yet you're going to present that as the answer for how the universe got here? Well, yeah, because if I don't, then there's got to be a... Well, yeah, because if I don't, there's got to be a cause that's not material. There's got to be a cause that's not natural. There's got to be something with more power or more something than nature. There's got to be something that's super matter. Super. Super what? There's got to be something that's supernatural. There has to be a first cause, and that first cause cannot be matter. Unless we say the universe pops into existence spontaneously, and folks, you understand that would violate the most fundamental scientific law that we have. Once you say that the universe pops into existence spontaneously, you have just utterly removed the entire scientific endeavor. And who is it that is accused of being unscientific most of the time? Oh, the religious person? is accused of being unscientific and not following the evidence and making stuff up and believing stuff that's outlandish, and we're expected to believe that a universe pops into existence from nothing and expected to believe that that's some type of scientific, scientific explanation? Now, let's go to that next idea on the law of cause and effect, and that is simply this. The cause has to be bigger than the effect. You know, the first problem with the atheistic idea is they can't get the original stuff. It's kind of like the scientist that went to God and he said, God, just not real impressed with the universe. Think you could have done a better job. And he says, really? The scientist says, in fact, I think I could have done a better job. God says, you think you could have done a better job with this universe than I did? The scientist says, yeah. God says, all right, let's have a contest here. Uh, you make your universe, I'll make my universe. We'll see whose universe is better. The scientist says, okay. He reached down, picks up some dirt. And start. God says, hold on, you've got to get your own dirt. You see, the atheistic idea has to have somewhere to start. They have to have something. But nothing is not an answer to why there is a universe instead of why there isn't one. If ever there were nothing, you would have nothing now, but you've got something, and the fact that you've got something totally destroys the idea that this something is all that there ever was or all that there ever will be. And the second problem with it is, the atheistic idea says that it originated from a tiny singularity 10 to the negative 26 centimeters across. Folks, according to the atheistic idea, you'd have to have a microscope to see the substance that supposedly brought this entire universe into existence. Here's the problem with it. The universe is really big. And when I say really big, let me tell you what I mean by that. Our universe is 20 billion estimated. We don't really know this because uh, lots of times we have to expand how big we thought it was. But at the present, the current calculation is it's 20 billion light years across. Now, let me explain to you what that means. I'm sure lots of you know that. But what it means is if you started on this end of the universe and you could travel the speed of light and you wanted to go to the other side of the universe, it would take you 20 billion light years. Now, a light year is the distance that light travels in a year. It's 586 quadrillion miles. Now, what in the world that number means, I don't know. I just memorized it. I just know that for a fact. It's 586 quadrillion miles. That's how far light goes in one year, and it would take you 20 billion years to get across the universe. And we're expected to believe that that originated from a tiny singularity, they call it. They call it singularity because they don't know what else to call it. 
because according to them, it doesn't behave like anything else in the entire universe would behave. It doesn't follow the laws of nature. Now, oh, and then, if you were to look a little bit closer, if I were to ask you, I dare say most all of you know, what galaxy do we live in? Oh, we live in the Milky Way galaxy. You know, we got the galaxy it's named after a candy bar. Uh, the biggest galaxy in our view is galaxy IC 1101. Aren't you glad you don't live in that? I mean, don't you, aren't you glad you live in the candy bar galaxy because it's just so much easier to remember. I'd much rather live in the Milky Way galaxy than IC 1101. Well, it just so happens that IC 1101 has 100 trillion stars in it. Now, let me put that in perspective for you. Several years back, they suggested that in our Milky Way galaxy, we had 100 billion stars. Now, two years ago, I think it was, they came back and said, oh, we're off. It's not 100 billion. Actually, because of the space dust that's getting in the way of our lenses, we think there are three to four times that in our Milky Way galaxy. Let me put the number 100 billion in perspective for you. If you got up every single day and counted to 10,000, why in the world you would want to do that, I don't know. I have an old, oldest son. My oldest son is 11. His name is Drew. He lots of times gets up before the rest of us in the house. And he'll do stuff. Sometimes he'll go out and shoot basketball. Sometimes he'll read a book. Several years back now, I guess it was about four or five, he had gotten up early and I said, Drew, you up early this morning? He said, yeah. I said, what'd you do? He said, well, I was laying in my bed and I counted. I said, what'd you count? He said, nothing. I was just counting. I said, oh, okay. I said, what'd you count to? He said, 3,000. Do you wake up in the morning and count to 3,000 for fun? Because I don't. I've never really encountered anyone else that does that. In fact, if you do that, please come and talk to me because I'd like to find someone else that actually does that other than just my son. But if you did that, and you didn't count to 3,000, no, you didn't count to 6,000, you didn't count to 9,000, no, let's say you counted to 10,000 every single day. You got up in the morning, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 7, 9, 10, 11, you count as fast as you could to 10,000, and every single one of those numbers, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, every one, represented a galaxy because they estimate there are 100 billion galaxies. If every one of them represented a galaxy and you did that for one straight year and then two straight years and then three straight years and then 100 straight years and then 1,000 straight years and then 10,000 straight years and then 20,000, of course you'd be dead by then, but work with me hypothetically here, 27,452 years or so, it's going to take you to count to 10,000 every single day to count to 100 billion. Oh, and in the 100 billion galaxies, like I said, our Milky Way galaxy is a middle-sized galaxy. There are some that have 100 trillion stars in them. Ours has a, a meager 200 to 300 or 400 billion stars in it. Oh, and, and just for kicks, let's ask this question. If we wanted to go across our Milky Way galaxy from one side to the other, like I said, we're over here. Now, work with me there again, hypothetically. Let's say we've got my Suburban out there. It's a, a 2005 Chevrolet Suburban, and we're going to soup it up and let it travel the speed of light, all right? Uh, work with me, like I said. We're going to also allow it to fly, okay? So now it flies, and it travels the speed of light, and the speed of light is 186,302 miles per second. All right, if it could travel the speed of light and we gave it a stretch job so that every single person in this auditorium tonight could fly with me and we take off going across our one Milky Way galaxy at an estimated 100 billion, 
It's not going to take you 10 years. It's not going to take you 100 years. It's not going to take you 1,000 years. It's not going to take you 50,000 years. Do you understand? To go across one galaxy is going to take you 100,000 years. Traveling the speed of light. To go across one galaxy out of an estimated 100 billion. Now, I said we're going to try to follow the evidence where it leads. Why do you think that in Psalm 19, the biblical text says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork? Day unto day utters speech, night unto night utters knowledge. There is no language, no voice where their sound is not heard. Here's why the psalmist put that there. Because you cannot honestly follow the evidence and look into the vast expanse of space and come up with the idea that it originated from nothing and popped into existence from a tiny singularity and then somehow expanded out from there. If you're going to follow the law of cause and effect and we're living in a universe that's 20 billion light years across, then the cause for that has to be bigger than what? It's got to be bigger than 20 billion light year across universe. And folks, a tiny singularity 10 to the negative 26 centimeters across doesn't do it for you. And that's why the psalmist explains that it doesn't matter if you're on the highest peak of the Himalayas. It doesn't matter if you are at the Dead Sea at one of the lowest points below sea level in the world. You can look up into the night sky and you can know the idea that it popped into existence from nothing does not follow the evidence. Now, that's also why you can go over to Romans chapter 1, verse 20, and you can read that since the beginning of creation, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even His eternal... Now, you look at it. Even His eternal... What does the text say? Power. Why does he say eternal power? Because you have to have a cause that came before the effect, so you've got to have the eternal aspect of it, and you have to have something that's bigger than the effect. You've got to have the power aspect of it. Where do you get a universe that's 20 billion light years across? Let me tell you where you don't. You don't get it from a tiny singularity that's 10 to the negative 26 centimeters. You have to have something bigger. Now, the next aspect of the problems with the atheistic idea and the following the evidence that, as you can now see where I'm going, which of course I suggest you probably could have at the beginning, but looking at the evidence as it points to the idea that there is a supernatural, all-powerful, eternal creator. The second aspect of this, I guess we might say the third, is simply that we know what explosions do. It's not as if when things blow up, we don't know what happens. When things blow up, order is not created. Now, it doesn't take a PhD to understand that. I saw a shirt the other day. It said, uh, I'm not a rocket surgeon. Well, you know, we're not rocket surgeons, all of us, and it's a good thing because, hey, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon in order to understand some of the very basic stuff that would push you toward the conclusion that there's a God. Let me tell you what I mean by that. What happens when stuff blows up? you got a 16-year-old kid, and he says, Mom, I'd like to go to the movies. Mom says, all right, yeah, no problem. said, but I've seen your room. It looks like a tornado hit it. Uh, if you clean your room, you can go to the movies. Kid says, all right, yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll get that clean. Mom says, what time are you going to the movies? 16-year-old kid says, well, I'm going to 
I'm planning on going about 6. She says, all right, need to have your room clean. He says, okay, no problem. 5.30 rolls around. She says, well, you started cleaning your room at all? He says, no, no, no. She said, I've seen that room. I know it's going to take some time. He says, i got to, I got to cover it, Mom, no problem. 5.45 rolls around. She says, uh, son, obviously you're not going to the movies. He says, why, Mom? We made a deal. I clean my room. You let me go to the movies? She says, have you started it? He said, no, but it's only 5.45. I've got plenty of time. She's thinking, no, you don't. You don't have plenty of time. Five till six. She watches her 16-year-old son walk up the stairs. Her 16-year-old son starts taking everything in his room and shoves it all into a big pile in the middle of his room, pulls out a stick of dynamite, sticks it in there, lights it. The mom is frantic. She rushes up the stairs. She throws open the door, and she looks in, and what does she see? Well, we know what explosions do, don't we? What she sees is all of those clothes that were in that pile have been perfectly folded, the T-shirts and the ones that need to go in the drawers. The drawers shot out at the explosion. They catapulted themselves into the drawers perfectly in color coordination. And then the ones that needed to be hung, somehow the hangers flipped through the air. The ones that needed hanging flipped through the air at the same time, simultaneously wrapping themselves around the hangers perfectly. And th Is that what happens when stuff explodes? Nah, you know that's not what happened with that You know his problem, he didn't have enough dynamite. Wasn't a big enough explosion. You know what, stick three or four sticks of dynamite under there. Oh, well, you know, no, okay, all right. It's not that he didn't have enough dynamite, you just didn't get to blow it up enough times. How many times would you have to blow up a room in order for it to get meter? Well, the answer to that is, it doesn't matter what type of probability you scale, scale you use, the answer is zero. There's no amount of explosion or power or whatever that you need to blow it up enough times or a big enough explosion to get it to straighten itself because it doesn't. You know what's interesting to me? That in 2009, I debated a guy by the name of Dan Barker. He's the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. In his book, Godless, that he put out in September of 2008, he said that he has been in more moderated public debates than any atheist he has ever known in the history of atheism. And from what we can tell, as far as moderated public debates, that's a true statement. Now, Dan Barker was asked by a man named Phil Fernandes, can you give me a single example of an explosion without intelligence that causes order? This guy's supposed to be the best atheistic debater in the world, at least in many people's opinion. He says, yeah, yes I can. Phil Fernandez says, okay, let's hear it. Dan Barker says, all right, when you go to your kitchen and you realize you're out of milk, you get in the car, you start the car, and the gas from the gas tank goes into your cylinder, the spark plug that's there causes that explosion. It shoots the piston down and it causes your car to move and you drive your car to the grocery store because explosions are causing order. Sounds all right at first until Fernandez says, uh, Mr. Barker, just a quick question. Was the engine intelligently designed by a mind? What you've just given us is a great example of how you have to have intelligence to get order. 
You see, there's not a single, listen to me, not a single example of any explosion that brings into existence functional complexity. And yet, when we look at our universe, it is so meticulously functional that you can't change it at all or you ruin it. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Now, the unbelieving skeptical community has come up with a term called the Goldilocks zone or the Goldilocks planet that we live on. Just so happens, here's what they say. You remember the story of Goldilocks, don't you? I think most of us as kids heard the story of Goldilocks. Uh, the three bears were eating their porridge, and daddy bear's porridge oh, was too hot, and so was mama bear's porridge, and so was baby bear's porridge, so they decided to go for a walk. Well, Goldilocks comes in, remember, and she tastes daddy bear's porridge, and it's still too hot. Mama bear's porridge, it's too cold, but baby bear, remember what it was? Just right. Well, then she goes to the living room. She sits in Daddy Bear's chair, too hard. Mama Bear's chair, too soft. Baby Bear's chair, just right. Up to the bed, Daddy Bear's bed, too hard. Mama Bear's bed, too soft. Baby Bear's bed. Now I want you to focus in on that term, just right. You see, the unbelieving community basically has to throw their hands up in the air and say, we don't know how this happened, but it looks like everything is just right for humans to live on this planet. Well, what do you mean just right? Let me show you what I mean. The sun is in an orbit of its own, but it is the center of our solar system. Our earth goes around the sun one time every 365.245 days or so, right? That's where we get a year, and then every fourth year we have to have a leap year because that's .245 days. But it takes approximately one year for our earth to go around the sun. While it's going around the sun, it veers from a straight line by one-ninth of an inch every 18 miles. It's almost a perfect circular orbit, but it's not. It's slightly elliptical, just slightly looks a little bit larger on the ends, kind of like an egg, but you can almost hardly even see it because it's so slight. It's almost a perfect circle. One-ninth of an inch every 18 miles. Well, you say, I mean, so what? Who cares? One ninth of an inch every 18 miles. All right, you know, if you took an inch and you chopped it up into nine little pieces and you took one of those, that means that tiny little piece is how much the earth moves in toward the sun every 18 miles. Now, you say, well, I don't really like that. I'd like to make it one eighth of an inch. Okay, you take the inch, chop it up into eight little pieces. You take one eighth of them. That's just a little bit more, right? So you're moving in just a little bit closer to the sun. I mean a tiny fraction every 18 miles closer to the sun. Just a little bit closer. Ah, you know what's going to happen? It's going to be problematic for you because what's going to happen is that twice every year the earth is going to get so close to the sun that life as we know it is going to incinerate, burn to completely burn up. You say by changing it from one-ninth of an inch to one-eighth of an inch? Yes. Oh, well, I don't want to do that. No, no, you don't want to do that. So let's change it to one-tenth of an inch. Instead of making it move toward the sun a little bit more. Let's chop it up into ten pieces, that inch. Chop it up into ten pieces. Take that one little piece. And now we're not moving quite so much into the sun. Now we're just, oh yeah, well if you change it from one-ninth of an inch to one-tenth of an inch, it just so happens that twice every single year you get down to something like negative 273 degrees below zero and life as we know it freezes. Humans can't live. Neither can plants and animals like we know it. You mean to tell me that the earth is just right 
as it travels around the sun, and if you altered it in the tiniest bit, yeah, that's what I mean to tell you. And folks, that's one example out of literally thousands that we could give. Let me give you just a couple more and then we'll move on from this point. If you were to take in a big deep breath, I like to breathe. It's, it's something that I have grown accustomed to over the years. I have tried to hold my breath and found that uh, I'm not very good at it. I can do it for about 38 seconds max, and then I really feel the need to have another breath. And it just so happens that the atmosphere where we live, you probably don't think about it much. In fact, when is the last time, if you're a praying person, you said, God, thank you for our atmosphere? You probably haven't prayed for your atmosphere very much. You probably haven't thanked God for that. It just so happens if you lived on Mars and you took in a big, deep breath, what would you do? You'd be dead. Lived on Saturn, took in a big, deep breath, dead. Lived on, what, Mercury, taking a big, deep breath, dead. Do you know there's not another atmosphere in all of space that anybody's ever seen where humans could stand on the surface of the planet and take in a big, deep breath? Just so happens our atmosphere is just right. It's 79% nitrogen, approximately, about 21% oxygen with about uh, 1%, maybe just a little bit less of water vapor and atmospheric gases and things like that. But it just so happens when you take a big, deep breath, you're getting about 21% oxygen. Some of us might be getting where we can't really breathe with 21% oxygen, and we might think, you know what, I'd like for that percentage to be a little higher. Well, you might not because oxygen's real flammable, you know? And if the atmosphere percentage was much more oxygenated and it was an atmosphere like we've got when somebody struck a match, the whole building goes up. You think, ooh, we don't want that. No, and you want to be able to breathe, don't you? And so if you get much less than 21%, you're going to start having serious problems breathing. Oh, it just so happens that half of the oxygen that you breathe comes from plants in the ocean. Okay, so what? What in the world has that got to do with anything? Oh, the plants in the ocean stay alive because tides move. Okay, so... Uh, the tides move because of the gravitational pull of the moon. And the moon is 240,000 miles from the earth. The moon is much, much smaller than the sun, but because it's only 240,000 miles from the earth and the sun is 93 million miles from the earth, they both look about the same size in the sky, but 240,000 miles from the earth happens to be, you know where we're going with this, I think, just right to keep the tides moving, to keep the plants alive in the ocean. If the tides weren't moving, the oceans would stagnate and the plants that produce your oxygen, at least 50% of it, would die and you wouldn't have the atmosphere you got if you just adjusted the distance of the moon a tiny bit from what it is now. Now, I could literally do that all night long. There are four forces at work in the world, basically. The strong gravitational force, the weak gravitational force, the force that is working between those forces and a couple of the other forces in the universe, the relationship is so microscopically strained. And I want you to understand this. If you altered the magnetic force and the law of gravity, the force of gravity, by, watch this, point... Zero 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 out to the fortieth zero, and you altered either one of them that small of a fraction, everything that we know in the universe would explode right now. It's all 
just right. Oh, and guess what? You don't get just rightness from. You don't get it from explosions. There has to be a mind behind that type of system. It's interesting that the story is told about Sir Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton wrote a scientific treatise. I was listening to a tape on the way up here today that said it's hardly even accessible. As far as if you were to read it, you can hardly even understand it. said it was probably the most effective, brilliant scientific book or work in existence today still. Now, he wrote it several centuries ago. He was a firm believer that there is a God. In fact, if I understand it correctly, he wrote more about the Bible than he did about science. Now, the story is told that Isaac Newton had one of his friends come over, and he had gone down to a carpentry shop. He had got the carpenter to make for him a scale model of the solar system, sun and the planet, and had a little crank on it that allowed the planets to move around the solar system, and he set it right in the middle of one of the rooms in his house. Invited his atheistic friend over. The atheistic friend came through, saw the model of the solar system there on his table. He said, wow, Newton, this is amazing. He said, uh, where'd you get it? Newton said, what do you mean where'd I get it? He said, well, who made it for you? Newton said, nobody made it for me. It just popped into existence from the chemical properties here in this room. The friend said, that's ridiculous. He started messing with the crank and the planet started going around. He said, no, I want you to tell me right now, Isaac, who made this for you? Newton said, nobody made it for, for me. Sometimes stuff like this just happens by chance. The friend said, that is a ridiculous explanation. I want you to tell me right now who made this model of the solar system. And Newton said, friend, if I can't convince you that a model of the solar system can pop into existence from mindless chance processes... How in the world do you expect me to believe that the universe in our real solar system after which this is designed somehow popped into existence from nothing? It doesn't make sense, does it? That's why in 1976, a member of the Lord's Church by the name of Thomas B. Warren, he had a Ph.D. in philosophy from Vanderbilt University. He was debating a man by the name of Anthony Flew. Now, you need to understand this, and I want you to stick with me here and listen to what I'm going to tell you. Anthony Flew presented a paper at the Socratic Society that was chaired by a man named C.S. Lewis. don't know if you've ever heard of C.S. Lewis, but if you have ever watched any of the movies that have come from the Chronicles of Narnia series, then you have been made familiar with C.S. Lewis. He was a man who wrote often about the existence of God and various things like that. C.S. Lewis was chairing this Socratic Society meeting. Anthony Flew delivered a paper in 1963, I believe it was, and that paper was a thousand words long, and from the night that he delivered it at the Socratic Society meeting, for the next, listen to me, six decades, 60 years, it was the most widely distributed atheistic paper in the world. Not in the country, not in any particular place, as far as the most widely distributed atheistic philosophical paper in the world. By anybody. Now, 
Anthony Flew was on the docket to debate Thomas Warren because at the time, Anthony Flew was recognized in the world as the leading atheistic writer and thinker in the world at the time in 1976. Thomas Warren demolished Anthony Flew. The copy of the debate is available for anybody that would like to see it. The World Video Bible School has copies. There are books still available. But one of the lines of argument that he used was very, very simple. He put up a picture of a prosthetic hand, an artificial limb, made out of plastic and metal, something that scientists had designed. And he said, Dr. Flew, did this prosthetic artificial hand have a designer? Trick question? You know, because when you have order, you have to have a designer. When there's design, there's always a designer. And Thomas B. Warren had a little pencil sketch of this prosthetic hand. He said, Mr. Flew, did this hand, prosthetic artificial hand, did it have a designer? You know what Anthony Flew answered? Yes. Yes, it did. Several years ago, I wrote an article on a $4 million metal alloy arm. It weighed 10 pounds. They hooked it to the shoulder of a Marine who had lost her arm in a car accident. It had six motors in it that they actually took nerves from her shoulder, attached the nerves to the motor so that when she thought about it, she couldn't move her finger. Now, if I understand it correctly, the first time or two they tried to hook it up, she would think about moving her pinky. And her thumb would move because it was miswired, but eventually they were able to get it where when she thought about moving her pinky, she moved her pinky. Now, it cost just that one, not the research, not the man hours involved, nothing. It cost $4 million to put that arm on this young 26-year-old Marine. And the doctor in charge of the research, Dr. Tukin, he said, we've never seen anything like this in prosthesis. He said, let me tell you what this girl can now do. She can take a jar of spaghetti and she can hold a spoon with the other hand and she can scrape the remaining spaghetti out of the jar with an artificial hand. He said, nobody's ever been able to do that to date. He said, she can take a pair of pants and fold them without using a hard, flat surface. Just holding them up and folding them. He said, in prosthesis, we have not seen this. He said, but. But it's still clumsy. Compared to what? It's clumsy compared to what? Oh, just your regular old human hand. You didn't know your arm was worth $4 million, did you? Oh, and, and let's say that... Uh, you are working on a shed outside or something and you have a hammer and you accidentally smash your finger. There is immediately a chemical cascade that starts shooting through your body. There's an enzyme in your body that eats bone. It's a comforting thought, isn't it? Uh, it just so happens, though, that it only eats the little chips of bone that you no longer need. Now, how in the world would the enzyme know what chips of bone you need and you don't need? Well, that's how well-programmed programmed your body is, when you smash your finger, that enzyme starts removing and dissolving the little chips of bone that you no longer need. The rest of your body starts moving the chips of bone that are going to be useful back into place, and within six to eight weeks, your finger is repaired, sometimes even stronger than it was before you smashed it. 
Now, you take that same hammer and you smash the metal alloy arm and you come back in six weeks and see what happens. What you got? You have a busted metal alloy finger until someone intelligent decides they're going to fix it. You take a, a knife and you cut some of the wires on that metal alloy arm and you watch and see what happens. How long are you going to have to sit and watch until time chance processes put those wires back together so that arm is functional again? Oh, and you take a knife and accidentally cut your hand and immediately a chemical cascade of blood clotting sends the perfect right chemicals to the perfect right place to start clotting that blood and sealing those wounds. And within minutes, that blood stops. And within a few hours, those capillaries and arteries and veins begin to be repaired. And within days, it's back to normal. So Dr. Flew says, yes, that prosthetic limb had a designer. Dr. Warren put a real human hand picture up. And he said, Dr. Flew, did this hand have a designer? It pales in comparison the prosthesis does to the human hand. Folks, we've come another 50 years or so, almost 38. We've taken prosthesis and prosthetics to a place that probably Anthony Flew never thought possible in 1976. And Dr. Kukin says it's still clumsy compared to your regular hand. Did this human hand have a designer? Dr. Flew, did it have a designer? No. No, it did not. Dr. Warren said, how did it get there? Dr. Flew said, it just grew there. It just grew there. You know, that's an unacceptable answer. And I think Dr. Flew knew it. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In 2008, Dr. Flew came out with a book titled, There Is No God. Well, that was the initial title until the no was marked out with a marker and there was an A on the top of the title so that it looks like, oh, that's a mistake, we've changed that. And the actual title reads, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Became a Believer. In 2008, Anthony Flew, at the age of about 82, came out and said, I have been terribly wrong. He said, my mode of operation, my modus operandi, has always been to follow the evidence where it has led me. That's what I've always tried to do. He said, in 1976, I thought I was following the evidence where it led me to the conclusion that there was no God. He said, however, I have now looked into our universe to such a degree that it is impossible to say, following the evidence, that there is no God. He says, I have been forced by the overwhelming evidence from design to say there is an all-powerful, supernatural, eternal mind behind everything that you see. I'll tell you what I like to think. I like to think that the next morning, Anthony Flew got up and he took his toothbrush and he had that toothpaste and he used his regular old human hand and he perfectly squeezed that toothpaste so that not too much came out, just enough. And then he took that toothbrush and he brushed his teeth, not too hard to damage his gums, but just right with the perfect pressure. And then after that, he sat down at his table and he started writing with his regular old human hand. And all the while, in his mind, he heard Thomas B. Warren saying, how did it get there? How did it get there? How did it get there? 
How'd it get there? How'd it get there? That's nerve-wracking for a minute, isn't it? You think about 36 years of that. And he heard his answer. It just grew there. Just grew there. Just grew there. Just grew there. And he started looking around, and he stuff doesn't just grow like that. And finally, he checked up and was honest with the fact that the evidence leads to a singular conclusion. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Folks, that's not a biblical conclusion. What I mean by that is it's absolutely a biblical conclusion, but it's not just a biblical conclusion. It's a scientific conclusion. It's a logical conclusion. It's a rational conclusion. It's a right conclusion. You haven't checked your brains at the door to arrive at the conclusion that there is a God. You have followed the evidence where it has led you. Now, it could be the case that there's somebody in here that's always believed that there's a God because their great-grandmama told them that there was one and she was the nicest, most wonderful lady that, she's ever, that anybody's ever seen and they've always just decided that they're going to believe that. Some people do believe in God without being able to give a reasonable explanation as to why they believe that, but that doesn't negate the fact that the rational explanation following every bit of real, scientific, biblical, historic, philosophical evidence arrives you at in the beginning, God. Now, what do you do with that conclusion? Let me tell you something sad about Dr. Flew's situation. In his book, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheists Can Believe It. They asked him, they said, okay, so you believe in God, which one? He said, oh, I don't know. He said, I haven't, decided to do any research on that. In fact, he said, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave that to other people. They said, what do you think about the Christian God? He said, you know what, from what I have seen, the personality of Jesus and the, the authenticity of the scriptures and some things like that, he says, I think that if I did the research that the Christian God probably has for him in favor more evidence than any other, but I'm just going to be content to believe that there's a God and leave it at that. Folks, what happens when you know the most crucial piece of information in the universe? What do you do with it? I mean, here is what I'm trying to say. What if there was a scientist who had been studying the cure for Ebola and a breakthrough came in in his research after 38 years of every single day being in his research, he thought that there was no cure, and then bam, he realizes there has to be a cure, and this right here looks like a pretty good possibility for it. But, but I'm about done. I'm finished. I'm not going to follow the evidence any further. If you have arrived at the conclusion that there's a God, great! Even the demons believe and they tremble. What are you going to do with the most important piece of information in the universe if there really is a God? What does that mean to you? You ever wondered why people don't want there to be a God? You see, if there's not a God, 
I do what I want. I sleep with who I want. I talk how I want. I make money how I want. Uh, Charles Darwin said that a man who does not believe in a God or a future existence of retribution or reward can have, as far as I can tell, for his mode of operation to follow the instincts and impulses which seem best to him. If there's not a God, you do what you want. If there is a God, that God put you here. And your number one responsibility of living this life is, guess what? To find out what that God wants from you. If you know there's a God and you don't do anything about it, you know what we call that in Christian Edmonton's apologetic circles? Practical atheism. Practical atheism is when you go to a person and you say, hey, you believe there's a God? They say, oh yeah, yeah, I believe there's a God. What are you doing about it? Oh, I don't think it really affects the way that I live much. I don't think I need to change my life. I don't think I need to rearrange anything that I'm doing. I believe there's a God, but I mean, so what? If you really do believe that there's a God, and the next question on your mind is, what does that God want from me? Folks, this has not been a lesson that has gone through the gospel story of Jesus Christ. What I would suggest to you is we have the same type of evidence that we have for the conclusion that there's a God to show that the Bible is God's Word and to show that Jesus Christ is God's Son. We can lay it out just exactly like we did tonight. If Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and he came down to prove to you that your creator cares so much about you that he would die on a cross for nothing that he did but for your own sins. Well, then the next question you ought to be asking is, God, what do you want me to do? You know, that's the exact same question that thousands of people ask about 2,000 years ago. There was a horde of tens of thousands of people and a man stood up and said there is a God and God came down in the flesh and Jesus Christ and you're responsible for crucifying him and the people who heard the message were so pricked by it they said what do we do? And Peter responded repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. And that day 3,000 people did just that and the Lord added them to his church that he had foretold was coming for thousands of years. You know, you could do the same thing this evening that they did 2,000 years ago, and you could be added to the same church, and you'd be following the exact same God that spoke the world into existence in Genesis chapter 1. Isn't that beautiful? Do you need to respond to the Lord's invitation? Do you need to get right with your Creator tonight? If you do, I hope you will, as we stand and as we sing.